Hi, I'm Craig Robleski, CSC, Director of Photography on Umbrella Academy, and you're listening to The Go Creative Show. Hey everyone, my name is Ben Consoli. I'm a director and owner of BC Media Productions. This is The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. So today we've got Craig Robleski, CSC, on the show today. He's the director of photography for Umbrella Academy, season one and two. And we spent a lot of time today certainly talking about Umbrella Academy, but more importantly, talking about lighting philosophies that we can all benefit from, really. I mean, he talks a lot about um, how he incorporates practical lights into his scenes, what he removes from his lighting package to you know, make the scenes have more depth, um, avoiding some of the pitfalls of lighting. And we also talk quite a bit about his um, kind of philosophies around structuring shots and frames to make them more interesting, creating anchors in the frame to make them um, you know, motivated and, and purposeful, a lot about camera movement. And we tie it to scenes in Umbrella Academy Season 2. It's a really good conversation, and I think you guys are going to like it a lot. Of course, we also opened the show with a big discussion about production during COVID-19. Now that film and television are kind of getting back to production a little bit, creeping back into it, um, Craig has some insight on how it's working in his world, and um, we you know, talk a lot about that, and I think you guys are going to be interested in that as well. Um, but before we get there, a couple of things to mention. First of all, I want you to follow Go Creative Show on all of our social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, Twitter. We're all there. Um, of course, gocreativeshow.com and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Um, and I also want to thank a couple of our sponsors, MZ Education for Creative and Post Lab, Stress-Free Collaboration and Final Cut Pro 10 and Premiere. Um, we'll talk about them a little bit later on in the show. Um, we also have some offers. OpenReel, which is the platform that I use for remote production using iPhones, is giving Go Creative Show listeners 10% off simply by using my name, Ben Consoli, or the name of the show, Go Creative Show. You get 10% off of OpenReel. And Soundstripe gives you 15% off. And Soundstripe is a great website for uh, royalty-free music. They've got a lot of great stuff on there. So if you guys are looking for music, check them out, gocreativeshow.com forward slash soundstripe. All right, let's uh, dive in because we've got so much to talk about with Craig Robleski, CSC, the Director of Photography for The Umbrella Academy, Season 1 and 2, available now on Netflix. So I'm here with Craig Robleski, the Director of Photography for Umbrella Academy, season two and so happy to have you on because you have some boston ties which make me very happy whenever we have people with boston ties so welcome to the show craig hey thanks for having me ben i guess it's been a long time listener so it's uh it's great to finally meet you and uh and thanks for having me on i always forget how long the show has been going on like it feels it still feels new to me because it's very much a side project as you know people know i i have a production company and that's what i do for my for my income, for my life. And I have this kind of on the side, but I think we're in like our seventh year or something like that of the Go Creative show. So it's always so nice when I hear that uh, people that are coming on have heard the show before and listened to it. It's it's really great. Yeah, it's a great show and to keep up the good work. I hope, well, we, I hope we keep that stretch, stretch running on this one. I, I do too. I mean, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, I don't not want to do the show. And actually per it's perfect timing now um, or at least up till now, production's starting to open up again in Boston, so it's not as restrictive as it was. But in the real dog days of the quarantine, my God, the podcast was like the only thing keeping me sane. I'm sure it was the same for you. I mean, you must have been doing interviews throughout that whole time too. Yeah, I spent a I spent a lot of time uh, staring at my computer screen talking to people. It's been great though. I mean, it's uh, you know we, we're all so busy all the time. It's so nice to have. The opportunity to do this and you know it's also great i did some some really fun podcasts with students and things you know where you just you get to sort of reach out to people that you normally either wouldn't have time or you know the ability to reach to so it's great it's been fun yeah what is life like for you 
now. I know that production's starting to open up again. You're seeing, um, I saw Fargo is back. Um, they're back finishing up their latest season. Um, I know a lot of other shows are picking up again. What are you seeing? Uh, it's definitely, it feels like the world is sort of creaking back into motion. Uh, I, I shot a commercial last week, uh, which was my first sort of COVID shooting. And it went really well. I mean, you know, there's a lot to think about that you didn't have to think about before. Definitely. There's a lot of things that are, you know, used to be unconscious that you now have to be very conscious of, you know, like, I mean, I'm a pretty, to the crew's detriment, sometimes hands-on DP. So (laughs) I need to be a little less hands-on now. Um, I can't be touching everything (laughs) and moving things around as much as I used to. And um, that just, but you know, the, the, the thing that gives me hope is that film crews are always a very adaptable and B they're always a group of people that look after each other, you know, in order for production to work well, everybody has to look after each other. So on that front, it works really well because the crew's like, okay, well, this is just now something we have to deal with. I mean, problem solving is one of their skill sets. So they just sort of deal with it as a problem they need to fix. And, and then they just look after each other and protect each other. And it, it was, it was a good couple of days of shooting. It was kind of reassuring to know that you can actually do it because, you know, if you, listen to the news too much, you start to think that everything's impossible. Yep. What were some of the more interesting changes that you had to make? On set? Uh, I mean, the biggest communication is, is surprisingly difficult with masks on. You, you realize a few things, uh, you know, when you start working in a COVID world, the things that you just, like I said, took for granted or, or were subconscious or unconscious that all of a sudden become part of it, you know, like communicating with a crew from a distance when you have a mask on, not just because of, you know, the, the sound being, being uh, a little muddy, but also just you realize how much you sort of lip read subconsciously, like how much we, how much we communicate via lip reading, even if we don't necessarily know we're lip reading. So communication is critical. Um, I'm looking at various options moving forward about wearing, you know, wearing a headset full time, which I've never done before. Uh, just trying to figure out how to communicate effectively with a crew and I also realized that it's really important that that a, a production is adequately staffed so that you can have people dedicated to their roles in a very distinct way because there isn't, you know, it used to be that, you know, someone could, you could pitch in and help out if someone was shorthanded, but now it's just not good for everybody to be touching everybody else's stuff. So, you know, it's critical that the roles are really defined and that everyone you know, that's part of the pod system they're talking about is that everything is clearly defined and everyone is kind of dedicated to to the work they they need to do with the equipment they need to do it with. And I think, I feel like it'll work. Uh, but, you know, that was the biggest thing was communication and just that sort of, you have to kind of squelch your muscle memory a little bit because everyone has muscle memory about how to do things on set. And you just need to think twice a little bit before doing some of the things we would normally do just in the interest of keeping everybody safe. I wanted to talk to you about staffing because part of what at least we have to do here in the non-union commercial world in Boston is do more with less. So we have a a lot less people. Now, obviously in the union world, there are more restrictions about how many people you need per department, but what kind of changes have you seen? Well, the the commercial I did was was fairly small. I mean, the crew size was maybe 30 people or something. So um, it wasn't, you know, the, the sort of scale that we're looking at on something like Umbrella Academy. But uh, the big thing is that, you know, I think I think everyone just has to understand that this is going to take a little more time and this is going to take maybe a little more people. Uh, and also the, because of the, the pod system and the, the kind of structure that has to be put on it, there might be some duplicating roles. You know, you might have to have, a, for example, a set dresser, that is in the pod that is involved closest to the cast. You might have to have a set dresser that is involved with the camera team or the lighting and grip team. You know, you might have to duplicate roles. Uh, Same with like props people. There might need to be a props person that is sort of with the cast on set. And there's a props person that maybe has to be offset. You know, just there's, there's that sort of dividing line between offset and onset that seems to be creating a bit of the division in, in the labor and I think that'll be, I mean, obviously this is things that we just need to get on its feet and we need to start working this out. I mean, I, I think everyone has a really good grasp on it theoretically, but until you kind of put it into action on a set, I think it's still somewhat hypothetical. But 
I think that the processes that everyone has put in place are really strong and everyone's put a great deal of thought into this. So I'm confident that it'll work. And I think it's just that acceptance that, you know, it's going to take a little more time and it's going to perhaps have some duplication of personnel and, you know, maybe slightly larger crew or, you know, in, in lieu of that, if the budget's not there to accommodate that, then there needs to be a, you know, the, the demands need to be scaled appropriately. You know, it's not, it's not like we can do, you know, for example, on the feature that I was on in Shrine in Boston that was shut down Shrine, we had a a quite large third act uh, crowd scene. You know, I think, I think at the end we had maybe 400 extras or something and we shot it before we got shut down. And now if we had to go back and shoot that scene, I don't even, I can't even imagine how we would do it. You know, it would require a major rethink. So I think it's, I mean, luckily we're, you know, the film business is full of very smart people. So I think we can figure it out, but it's going to be a process. And it starts at creative, I think. Like the creative's got to change. Scripts have got to change and creative has to change in order to accommodate the new, you know, the new landscape for production. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think the the challenge is to is to protect the essence of what you're trying to do and also to protect the process. You know, those are the two things. If we can because the ultimately you don't want the audience to to feel the covid aspect of it, you know. I mean, unless the, unless that's what your story's about, hopefully the audience doesn't realize they're watching a covid production for some reason. And you know, we're trying to you know, like trying to preserve intimacy in scenes, trying to preserve uh, the relationships in terms of physical distance, you know, those are those are the sort of challenges to keep the frames together and keep the story together in a cohesive way that is invisible to the audience about what we had to go through on the COVID front to make it work. What uh, a challenge. Yeah, it's, and it's if, tough. And if you could, just for, we don't need to dive too far into it, but I am, I would like to explain what the pod system is, Um you know, briefly, we don't have to dive too far in, but because we mentioned it, it's something that's relatively new. People are starting to at least hear that term uh, because it came from the white paper that was circulating around. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you explain what it is? Well, I'll give you the sort of, uh, there's various different versions of it, but in essence, the pod system is built on the crew member's relationship to the cast and relationship to set. Uh, and the, it sort of go. It's kind of like concentric rings moving out from the cast, where you know you have a pod of people that will be in close proximity to the cast on a regular basis. For example, camera operators, um, you know, second assistants for slating, boom operators, uh, those that sort of team. And then you know the people who like props people who need to be you know sound guys who need to wire them. Those sorts of people that are in close proximity to the cast are kind of in one pod. And the idea of the pod system is that people are isolated from one another in the crew so that you don't have cross-pollination in the pods between people. For example, if you're in the pod that's closest to cast, you shouldn't be out with the pod that is getting equipment off the trucks to come to set because they're just trying to minimize the exposure of people to various other people within the crew. So, you know, there's a pod generally closest to the cast. There's a pod, like the lighting and grip people are in a separate pod where they're on set, but they're not in close proximity to cast necessarily because we'll be, they'll be doing their work with stand-ins uh, to, to get the lighting and grip set up. And same with some, some members of the camera team. But that's kind of how it's working. And then, you know, it moves outward from there where there's another pod that is kind of offset that's dealing with, you know, equipment on trucks, the, you know, prop stores, that sort of thing. So it's, it's working. There's various different versions of it, but essentially it's sort of this, these concentric rings that move out from the cast outward and trying to retain integrity in those rings so that you don't have people going from pod to pod, which can just increase the variables of transmission. Well, luckily you finished Umbrella Academy, at least your work on it before COVID. So, you know, we're able to enjoy a full second season uh, that's on Netflix now. Um, so let's talk about it because sure. it's it's a really good show with really strong cinematography. And I know in season two and season one, you worked with Neville Kidd, that's who right. we had on the show uh, back a little while ago talking about, he was on for Altered Carbon. 
And uh, so if you guys want to hear that episode, it's we'll put it in the show notes, but you can search for it on, um, on our site. Um, now, for the people that don't know, what is this show about? Can you give us a brief synopsis? Oh, wow. Uh, that's like the hardest question <laughs> because, <laughs> because the show is, you know, the show is about everything. I mean, when I spoke to Steve Blackman, the showrunner, about it for the first time, he kind of gave me the elevator pitch and he said, it's uh, X-Men meets Wes Anderson, which at that point I well, was kind of hooked. That's a great, yeah, that makes sense. Like, as soon as I heard that, I'm like, I'm in, I don't really need to hear anymore. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Um, but essentially the, the, the story is that there's a, a family uh, that was created by this eccentric billionaire named Reginald Hargreaves, who uh, spontaneously one day in 1989, uh, women all over the world became pregnant and gave birth to children. Uh, it was like immaculate conception. And they were all had superpowers, all of these kids that were born. And Reginald Hargreaves went around the world and bought seven of these kids, like literally bought them. <laughs> from these families and they're so they're from all over the world and he created this this crime fighting academy called the umbrella academy where he put these kids to work fighting crimes and using their superpowers to better the world uh and you know from basically from there it becomes the most you know dysfunctional family drama because you've got not only seven people from all over the world who kind of have nothing to do with another that have been forced into being a family but they all have superpowers and they're all living under this in eccentric, you know, potentially madman Reginald Hargreaves who only gives them numbers, doesn't give them names. You know, they, they just have the most dysfunctional childhood imaginable. So you can imagine how that extrapolates into, you know, the basic family problems, but like on steroids, (laughs) it's, it gets pretty intense. What I found interesting about the show visually is this constant blend between what is familiar to somebody as a superhero, you know, genre, and also something that's very natural looking. And that had to be a challenge on your end. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of how you've developed that style and how you blended the two. Well, that's, that's the essence of the show, really. I mean, it's, it's a grounded superhero show. You know, and when I talked to Steve for the first time, I said, you know, what really shines through in these scripts is the humanity that, you know, that no matter what happens on screen, no matter how fantastic or extraordinary the activity you're seeing on screen is, it's always, there's a heart, there's always heart there. You know, there's always an element of humanity, no matter what's happening. And that's kind of, that has to, that has to stay true visually as well, where we need to feel like this is grounded. This needs to be some version of reality so that it doesn't become you know, a, just a straight one-dimensional superhero show. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, the graphic novels support that. I mean, the graphic novels are an amazing blend of of the natural and the supernatural. And, you know, we wanted to retain the essence of that. And Neville and I talked at length about it in terms of how how to do that. And, you know, one of the, for me, my personal approach to it was I always wanted to create structured frames. To me, one of the, one of the visual hallmarks of the show, no matter what, is going on is the frames always have structure to them. And it was really important that the frames had a sense of architecture and geography and geometry to them so that it retained a bit of that graphic novel feel no matter what was happening. You know, and the Alexa 65 format goes a long way to help with that because of the the scope and scale of the lensing. So, I mean, to me, I, I, I was talking, I always talk to the operators about it, you know, where I, I don't want to feel like there's floating frames where it feels like the frame is arbitrary or it's just where there's, there's no structure to it. You know, there's no kind of foundation for the frame. And I've, it, it was an interesting challenge because, you know, our sets were so amazing uh, for both seasons. So finding the structure in those sets is quite, is quite simple. I mean, they're so beautifully done. But, you know, when you get out into the real world, the real world, world doesn't necessarily have that sense of structure. So it was challenging for the operators to find those structured frames. And it was you know, when we were scouting locations, it was always about finding something that had something we could grab onto visually, you know, because the the risk of the show is that you get out in the real world and the real world's just way too normal. And then you go into the academy and it's it's just, you know, so incredible. So it was finding that balance. And, you know, hopefully we struck that balance of, 
of the uh, sort of more graphic structured frames, but having it still feel relatable and somewhat authentic. How do you guide your operators to find that structure? What is it that you're looking for? Uh, it's really, I mean, it's, there's various terms I use, and I don't know how technically accurate they are, but it becomes part of our language about, you know, where we anchor the frame, where the frame has to be anchored on something, or, or you know, there's a hook we can hang the frame on so that it feels like it's a deliberate choice and not we're not just pointing the camera arbitrarily. You know, and I think it's it's sort of about ingraining that into their heads in terms of looking for that. And that's, you know, there's a lot to it. I mean, sometimes it's a diagonal leading line through frame. Sometimes it's just incorporating the structure of a building to kind of follow the frame lines so you get that sense of a frame within a frame and structure. It's just about that, you know. It's just about looking for ways that if they're looking at the frame and the frame feels arbitrary or it feels like it doesn't connect to the world around them, you know, sometimes it was as simple as just giving people a little additional headroom to place them into the world, you know, so they so they feel like they're, there's a person in a frame of a building, not a frame of a building with a person in it, you know, where you're, you're sort of framing for the, the, the reality around them and that the person exists within that reality as opposed to framing for the person and the reality in the background is irrelevant. You know, it's just it's a matter of just how you think of it. Now, you had mentioned the sets, which really are incredible. I mean, the set design in the show is is stunning. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, so you have the luxury of having beautiful sets, but you still have to find that structure. And I, I'm curious, how involved were you in the construction of the set? Were you involved at all trying to develop and maybe, you know, give the, the set designers and production designers some thoughts about what kind of anchors, what kind of structure you were looking for? I mean, I, I personally was very involved, and I know Neville, when Neville started the both seasons, so he was on the ground before I was, uh, but he always involved me in the conversations, and we had a lot of conference calls about the sets, and they were very inclusive, and the art department and production designer were fantastic at including us and, and you know, getting our input. And, you know, it's just, it's really important because the show has to have a consistent vocabulary and everything is important, you know, and then if, you, if you're out scouting and you find a practical building, then it's about how it's dressed and how it's built so that it still feels like part of our world. And a huge part of it is the scouting where there's some things you just don't even look at because you just know there's nothing there. You know, it's just doesn't have that sort of X factor that you're looking for in a location where it's like, there's something interesting here. There's something that we can that's our world. You know, we, we sort of call it umbrella. Like, well, that's not umbrella. That's umbrella. You know, it just becomes part of the language in meetings where, you know, it's like that doesn't feel very umbrella. And everybody sort of knows what it means. It may, might mean slightly different things to everyone, but everybody kind of knows globally what it means. All right, let's take a moment and talk about education. Now, during COVID, it was the perfect time to you know, give yourself a creative and um, personal edge on your competitors out there uh, by making yourself better at your craft. Now, this is what MZ is all about. It's about providing high-quality education to people like us, creative people. This is who we are here at Go Creative Show. And MZ makes sure that they have a catalog of hundreds and hundreds of hours of high-quality, video-based education, and a whole bunch of topics that we're interested in. Directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. There's so much on there. And you can buy individual courses, and that's great. But if you become an MZ Pro member, you get access to their entire collection of really great education. Now, all education, just like anything, education is only as good as the educator are. And the teachers and trainers that they have uh, in the MZ program here are fantastic. I mean, I'm talking about accomplished people, names that you know, like Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom. Um, the ARI Academy is actually on there as well. And th there's just so many great courses. Now, I encourage you guys, just go to the, go to the website. Check it out for yourself. Look around. 
gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, and just see what kind of courses there are. Look at some of the previews, and you will know immediately that this is a platform that you should be part of and you should be learning from. Uh, that's what I did. That's how I spent my time <laughs> during COVID-19. And um, I know many of you also did. But if you haven't yet, check it out for yourself at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, education for creatives. Talk to me about the differences between season one and season two. I mean, season two takes place for the most part in the 60s. Um, but what are some of the visual differences that you, you know, put into season two that weren't in season one? Well, they, they had to be treated a little bit differently. I mean, it was, it was interesting because season one was, you know, we were, there was so much world building going on. And, you know, the book of the vocabulary of the show was being written to some extent as we went. I mean, obviously Neville, he, you know, wrote a great deal of the book on the first episode. But then it just, as all good shows, you hope it anyways, that it, it evolves and the, the language expands as you shoot. Because, I mean, I'm, Neville and I have a very healthy competition in terms of we're always trying to one-up each other in the best possible way. And it becomes this sort of, you know, collaborative competition where we're, you know, everything's just building and growing all the time. And it's a really great relationship that way. So, you know, there's... Absolutely. Now, Season if I one, asked him that same question, would he say that too? Or would he? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, we should get him on the line. Maybe. <laughs> I like that. I would hope he would. I mean, I know that, you know, we've, if, I, I never felt any sense of anything but a really healthy competition. You know, it's, you know, DPs are particular individuals and, you know, it, it's a kind of a rare chemistry to have it work that way because it doesn't always work that way. Uh, yeah. But in season one, there was a lot of that world building going on. And then season two, the, the biggest thing that struck me with season two was the emotional stakes were much higher because of each, uh, each character having their own kind of individual arc, you know, because of the way Steve had structured the story where, where because of the disruption of the timeline, they were all, they all landed in Dallas at different times that they all had built their own lives. So by the time they all get back together, they've all had these individual experiences. Mm. And each one went on a very definite emotional journey within that experience. So the emotional content and the emotional stakes in season two were much higher because of that individual experience that everyone was having. I mean, season one, there was emotional stakes with the family and the and the the, the integration of the family and how they were just not getting along and, you know, those sorts of family struggles. But this was individual struggles and individual arcs that had to be looked after visually. And I I really enjoyed it because it, you know, it really gave the, the season so much depth and so much interest as a cinematographer trying to visualize those emotional journeys. But the one, the biggest thing for me was that, you know, I talked earlier about things being umbrella, you know, in season one, there was definitely umbrella lenses you know, where we would use very wide lenses and, you know, get that very sort of distorted, uh, uh, you know, out sort of um, a, a sort of graphic novel quality to it, you know, with that, where you, you could tell this is like a heightened version of reality. And the thing about season two for me, I mean, I, I don't know if Neville would agree, but for me, I just found that sometimes those lenses felt wrong. You know, when we put the sort of umbrella lenses on the emotional moments, it was kind of deflating those moments and it felt like it was, it was, you know, almost overtaking the emotion of the moment. So I personally didn't use as the wide lenses quite as much as I did on season one, just because it didn't quite feel right. And certainly some, a scene like the, uh, like the sit in at the diner, you know, it just, that, that had historical weight. It had emotional weight and it just needed to be treated with the reverence and respect that it deserved. And, it felt like sort of inflicting ourselves on it photographically with a wider lens or, you know, sort of showing off for lack of a better word, just felt wrong. And there was a lot of moments like that, you know, where we could still retain the essence of that scale that Umbrella is known for, but still retain that emotional intimacy that was required. So it was, season two was a different animal in the sense that we had to 
keep the sense of the epic, but really look after the emotional aspects as well. That's something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, for you know, from from a visual standpoint, I wanted to discuss your lens selection because season one and season two, I thought, had a lot of wide shots. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just it lived on wide shots for a really long time, which I I just particularly love that look. I, Me too. So I'm 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 a fan of that. <laughs> but um, I want to talk to you about the lens choices that you made, and then also what does though what do those lens choices mean? Because there is something about a wide shot that is very, very different. A wide angle gives you a different feeling. It tells a different story. And it does kind of take you out of reality a little bit. Um, So tell us about that. What were the lens choices you made in season two? And why? Well, I should start the conversation by talking about the Alexa 65 and how it alters our perception of optics as cinematographers. I mean, basically, because of you're shooting a larger sensor, you can essentially shoot, you're essentially shooting longer lenses that are giving you wider field of view. So example, like a 40 mil becomes like a 32 mil. So if you put a 40 on the camera, you're getting the 32 mil field of view, but you're getting the optical attributes of a 40 mil, where you're getting that compression on a 40 mil and you're getting that flat field of view. And that extends down the line. Like even if you shoot a 25, that becomes the field of view of about an 18, but you're still getting that flat field of view of a 25. So you can use wide lenses, and this is one of the things I really love about large format sensors, is you can use wide lenses, but you don't feel the lens. You know, you can get that immersive, epic quality of a wide lens. Like you can shoot a close-up of somebody on a 25 and feel their surroundings and get that beautiful fall off that you'd get from a 25 but you've got the field of view of an 18 that's showing you so much of the world, but it's flat, so you can shoot a close-up of somebody and not be distorting their features. Like, it's just, it's kind of like how the eye sees. You know, I mean, we have very wide field of vision, but it's not fisheye and distorted on the edges. So yeah. we, the way we take in the world is a lot like the way the Alexis 65 takes in the world, where you can, you really get a sense of the surroundings, but you don't feel like it's a, it's a photographic or an optical trick that's being played on the audience. You're just presenting it to them in a very natural way. I mean, there's times when you're moving the, the Alexis 65, it's like a 25 or even a you know 29 on it past an object. And it feels just like human vision. It feels like you're walking past the object. It's kind of like 3d, but better because it's 3d without feeling affected. It's like, it's, I love it. I mean, I love moving the camera with these wide lenses on because it just feels so real and it feels like you're carrying the audience through the story and it feels like you're just walking with them through through the story. So that's kind of And I think I think a lot of our audience can relate whether they use the Alexa 65 or not. I haven't, but I can relate in the sense of that difference between a Super 35 and a full frame. Mm-hmm. Like you, you I think a lot of people listening now can have had that experience where they really see the benefits um, you know, some may some may see it benefits. I do of jumping to the full frame because you don't get the issues with the sort of the uh, vignetting and the the issue like the the bending of the frame a little bit on the sides of those wide lenses. So it's yeah. interesting to hear you say that uh, uh, using the sixty five. Yeah, it's the same principle. I mean, it's the same with the LF with the Monstro. You know, any of the larger sensors have that same effect, and it's uh, to me it's it's the holy grail. Because you can, you can immerse the audience in the story without having it feel affected or forced, you know, and that's what I love about it. And I think that's what the audience responds to on some level with the photography in Umbrella Academy, even if it's on a subconscious level, even if they don't understand what it is, they feel like they're in there with the characters in the story. You know, like if you're shooting a dialogue scene at a table and you're, you're shooting their single, you know, on a 29 mil it feels like you're sitting across the table from the person, you know, and then you obviously you get it on a bigger and bigger monitor and it starts to become sort of proportionate to reality. And it's like the person's in your living room. Like it's a, it's an amazing thing. And, you know, those lenses, I mean, we, I, the 29 was kind of the superstar for 29 and the 35 were kind of the rock stars for season two for me. I we probably shot 80% of the show on those two lenses. Wow. Um, 
And it's just, you know, because because of the, the nature of the way we shoot, you know, we can move the camera around so we can build a wide shot into a close-up, you know, using using a crane or steady cam. You know, it's just, it's all about kind of carrying the audience through the story. And um, But to answer your question about what the lenses mean, I mean, it's we shoot so much on the wide end, you know, that when we do go long, for whatever reason, it's sort of, you know, it's, it means something, you know, which is what I love about lensing. You know, when you do something, one thing all the time, it doesn't mean anything anymore. You know, whereas if you, you know, keep your powder dry on certain tools and then you bring them out and you fire them off, it's like gets people's attention, you know. And, you know, I I think it's, the camera's a very precise tool and I like to use it very specifically and very deliberately because the audience has a subconscious relationship with imagery. You know, they've absorbed so much of it over the years watching movies and and TV shows that they they kind of understand the language on a subconscious level and they know what things mean on a subconscious level. And on some level, as cinematographers, we have to think that way as well. We have to think like, what does this mean to the audience? Like what, you know, the difference between a 29 and a 35 on the Alexa 65 is a marked difference, you know, in terms of how the audience's relationship to the character, the relationship to the surroundings, what how it feels moving past objects at all it all means something. And, you know, it's, it's conversations I was constantly having with the operators about, you know, what, what's the right lens. We weren't just defaulting, you know, we never wanted to default like, Oh, let's just put on this one, you know, cause if we were to going to put on, for example, the 18 mil, which is like a 12 mil equivalent, you know, that's a pretty serious choice for the audience in terms of what you're showing them and what it means. So every thought, everything had to be very well considered. Something else that was very purposeful uh, that I saw is your camera movement. Uh, it, it always felt like every shot that you had was never a throwaway. It, it was like, it really was purposeful, meaningful, well-crafted, structured, like you mentioned earlier in the show, um, particularly with camera movement. And one scene um, in particular is just that opening, well, it's not it's not the very beginning of episode six, season two, but it's within the first couple of minutes, but it's when you are revealing the beauty salon from the clock and you kind of pull out it. And like you said, it the same lens, same shot, you're getting close-ups, two shots, wide shots, everything is happening all because of the way that you move that camera. And that's just one example of many. So can you talk to me about your kind of philosophy around camera movement? Well, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of revelation in, in camera movement. Um, I think one of the ways to keep an audience engaged in the story is to be constantly giving them new information with camera movement. Uh, you know, there, there's a tendency sometimes to get an establishing shot and then go tight. But I feel like with the establishing shot, you've already given everything away. And now there's nothing more to show them. You know, now you're going from giving up everything and then going in and showing details of that everything. Whereas a shot like the one you mentioned, it was very specifically structured because it was a time cut uh, from Alice's Allison's arrival to years later. We wanted to reveal Allison. You know, we, we didn't want to give her way off the top. We wanted to use the radio and the posters on the wall to help sell the time cut so that the audience knows that we're in a different time frame. I mean, not everyone's going to pick up those little minutiae, but, you know, the choice of the song, the choice of the posters on the wall, and seeing that salon in a different way than we saw it in the previous scene. You know, you know in the previous scene, it was like, it was late at night. It was kind of closed down. This is like in full swing. Everything's going on. We wanted to have an energy. So Ellen Kiris and I, the director, talked very specifically about what the revelations were in that shot and how that shot would evolve and bring the audience from the past into, into what was now our current time in a way that, that gave them new information all the time. And then, you know, we land on the dustpan. We see someone sweeping up dust. We don't know who it is. We come up, oh, it's Allison. Now she works there, you know, and you're giving the audience these clues along the way and they can connect the dots. And they can be like, oh, because I, I always watch the show with my wife and I always love seeing her reaction to those kind of shots because there's this sort of aha moment. And she's like, oh, Allison works there now. And I kind of go, yes, it worked. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because it, I think revelation is an incredibly powerful tool in camera movement. And 
unfortunately for us, Umbrella Academy is a show that embraces that. I mean, not every show has the patience or the will to do that kind of shot that, you know, takes a bit of time to to evolve and to resolve itself. But Steve Blackman, God bless him, is someone who really wants to keep the audience engaged and keep them leaned in. And likes to we like to drop little clues along the way that keeps the audience interested. So a shot like that is a great example of that revel the tool of revelation and how important it is in what we do. Now season two takes place in the six nineteen sixties. And what are some of the things that you did from the lens selection to lighting to even, you know, shot development to help support this time period? Well, the one thing that uh, Gautam Pinto is our debt, who's just a genius. And we were always talking about, we, we were sort of policing each other to keep things from feeling too contemporary. You know, I mean, there's, there's a very contemporary style of photography you know, where the light is very soft and it's very modeled and it's very photographic, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, and we were very tight about policing each other. And, you know, for example, in the diner, you know, sometimes if you throw up a big, you know, book light, soft light, it just feels too contemporary. It doesn't feel real. And I really wanted to to sort of immerse the audience into this world of the 60s and not feel like we were bringing a modern take on uh, on the 60s and that extended to the lot that was created for the show as well where it had that you know it rendered the colors in a in a way that was more evocative of that era where we didn't have the really contemporary snappy colors of you know what would be like a modern film stock or digital camera we wanted to adhere more to those you know pastel tones you know it's that the sky kind of skewed towards a pastel tone obviously the wardrobe played a huge role in that and and the production design in, in incorporating those tones and keeping us from those strong primary contemporary colors and really embracing. I mean, there's such great tones in the 60s, you know, all those mm. colors that you just don't see anymore. You know, like, I don't know where they found that swatch book, but it was just, they sort of threw it away after the 60s, which is a bit tragic because there's some beautiful colors in there. And, you know, the, the combination of the lot, uh, the you know, the 65's color science is fantastic. And the LUT and the, the design and the wardrobe really kind of put it in the pocket. And then it was just for, it was up to us to not sort of be overly contemporary with how it was photographed so that it didn't feel like we were, I just never wanted to feel like there was a camera shooting this. I wanted to feel like you were just being presented this world in an inobtrusive way, but still in an interesting way. You know, I mean, obviously, inobtrusive isn't exactly the right word for Umbrella Academy's camera work. But hopefully it doesn't ever overwhelm the story and overtake it. You know, that's the goal. Let's take a quick break and talk about post-production collaboration. Now, I am a Final Cut Pro 10 user, as all of you guys know. But what I'm about to tell you works for Final Cut Pro and also Premiere. So all of you Premiere editors can uh, can use what I'm about to tell you right now. <clears throat> now, for anybody that is editing. You know that collaboration is a little bit tricky. I mean, you always want to know what other people are doing, but you don't want to be, you know, messing up each other's files. You also don't want to have to be sending files back and forth all over the place. So collaboration is a hard thing to do in any NLE. But what PostLab does is it makes it easy and stress-free. That's why we love it here at Go Creative Show. Now, if you haven't heard of PostLab, you got to go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash Post Lab, and you get to try it out for yourself for three months. But let me tell you what it is. Post Lab is a collaboration tool for Final Cut Pro and Premiere that gives you incredible access. Now, besides always saving your documents locally, it also syncs all the changes with your entire team, which is exactly what you want when editing collaboratively. And that certainly beats zipping up files and emailing documents back and forth all the time. No, those days are over. Also, you don't get any broken files. Now, anybody that has worked in, you know, tried to cobble together a collaborative workflow in post-production, you know that the worst thing in the world is having two people working on the same file at the same time. It's an accident waiting to happen. But PostLab prevents that accident because anytime somebody starts working on your library, it locks it from everybody else. So you don't have to worry about it. Plus, it also keeps track of what you're doing and makes sure everyone knows what you're doing. That's that's the kind of that's the kind of thinking that we want when a company like Post, Post Lab 
is creating a collaboration tool. That's the way you want them to think. And they also have something that they call Time Machine 2.0, which allows you, allows you to browse the history of each library. You can jump back and forth between versions. You can find a particular edit that you're looking for within seconds, and it opens it exactly how you left it, down to the blinking playhead. So if any of this is even slightly of interest to you, I strongly encourage you go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash postlab and try it out for yourself. You get three free months, right? Why wouldn't you? Gocreativeshow.com forward slash postlab. Stress-free collaboration in Final Cut Pro and Premiere. You introduced a lot of different colors in your lighting as well. I mean, certainly there's colors in the wardrobe and the set design and all of that, but you introduced a lot of pops of colors through light, uh, whether it be neon lights that were thrown into the set, um, you know, having your practicals be extraordinarily warm at times, um, having really, really like overly blue light coming through windows. Um, and then just, you know, there'll be pops of green, pops of red everywhere throughout the whole series. And I think it was to your advantage that you were playing in the 60s where they were embracing color so much. But at the same time, it's hard to do that because a lot of those heavy, uh, deeply saturated colors are indicative of kind of our time now. But I think you did a really good job of making it feel um, modern, but r correctly representative of the 60s. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about the way you incorporated color into Umbrella Academy season two. Well, I'm glad you feel that way because it was it was part of that policing process that I talked about earlier, where we had to always be checking ourselves and saying, you know, not only is this indicative of the '60s, but it still has to be Umbrella. You know, it still has to be the show. And part of the signature of the show is exactly what you said. You know, those punches of color, the very warm practicals, the strong light coming in from outside the rooms you know, it's coming through smoke, those sorts of things. It's all part of the language of the show. And we can't just throw that language away for season two. We have to bring a, a modified version of that language into season two and adapt it to the 60s so that it feels, it still feels evocative of the era, but it also feels evocative of the show, which is very important. You know, you can't just expect the audience to turn it on. And, you know, we still want them to know it's Umbrella, you know, as soon as you turn it on, we want them to know that this is Umbrella Academy. So, you know, it was an important part of it. You know, and I was thinking of a scene like like the bingo hall where the handler and Lila are playing bingo. You know, that was a great example where we, and, you know, the Astera tubes, which are, you know, I don't want to plug the product, but those, you know, programmable. I'll plug LED it. Who cares? I always talk about how great <laughs> the Astera tubes are. They're, they were incredible. Like they were a game changer for us. To do a period show where there's so many fluorescent fixtures, you know, the 60s was when fluorescent light had kind of was coming into its own. So fluorescents were part of the language big time in the 60s. And the thought of doing a period show where we're, you know, gelling tubes, replacing tubes, you know, why rewiring uh, vintage fixtures to take tubes, like, oh my God, a bit of nightmare. But this was great because we could just take the, the blank fixture, throw the astero tubes in it, and John Godet, our gaffer, could just control it, you know, from his iPad and give us whatever tone we want. And the bingo scene is a great example of that, where we not only could we put the tubes in any pattern we want, and we kind of created this staggered pattern of four-foot tubes, we could put any color we want in there. And I just thought the idea of this handler and Lila in this sort of sickly green fluorescent world, like she's so about how she looks and where she, you know, her, everything is so put together in her environment to be in this gnarly smoky room under these green fluorescents playing bingo just seemed like such a good fit. And it was still just, you know, very much the show where you can incorporate those tones and, you know, between the colors of the room and then we had tungsten punches of light and all of these great wardrobe elements combined with these green fluorescents just created a frame that, was very umbrella, but still very 60s, you know, because you get that sort of uncorrected, like back in the day when you shot film and you get these uncorrected fluorescents and everything kind of goes green. You know, you see it like all the president's men and all this stuff, like all these great, yeah. you know, I've always loved that. And I kind of missed that shooting digital where you can't get that, that kind of funky green tone out of a fluorescent. So I was talking to the gaffer and I said, I just want this to feel like we're shooting on film under uncorrected fluorescents. 
So it's got that gnarly vibe and he was like playing around with it and he got to a really good place with it. You know, and that's a great example of how we can use color in a way that's integrated. And we always try to use color in ways that's integrated. You know, I mean, it's season one, we had a little more liberty to create, you know, there's, there's that alleyway in season one that, that we lit with, you know, greens and really strong blue moonlight, you know, very graphic and very graphic novel. But this felt like it needed to be a bit more grounded. So we were always trying to find a way to, to I mean, justify is not the right word because you don't really need, to, I mean, Ev, Neville would always say, you yeah, look, there's a talk, talking chimp. We don't need to justify, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which was always his line, which I thought was a great one. Um, so, you know, justification is not the right word. It was just more making it feel like it was correct for the scene and correct for the tone and correct for the show. Uh, another scene that I absolutely loved in episode six, you, the, I've had three scenes on my list here that I wanted to mention, and you've already just naturally brought up two, which makes me so happy. The bingo scene was one for sure. Um, but I loved the Tiki Lounge in episode six. Like that, I was just obsessed with that set. And I think it really is indicative of the, the entire series in that it is loaded with practical lights. I, I, can't, I can't think of another show that is, that is using so many practical lights. It's just constant and um, exposing the light fixtures. Like in the Tiki scene, you have that big, huge uh, light source on the top, the big circular light above the table. And I think it, it, it's so clearly the source of light for you know that, that overhead light and you're just exposing it as a light fixture. And I, I just love that. I love the way that you guys use practicals and expose them and just let them be seen. Um, and I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the decision to do that. And what does that mean to your lights that are offset when you have so many onset that the viewer can see? Because as a viewer, when you see so many practicals, you kind of get a sense of what everyone's face should look like. And you're, it, are you pigeonholing yourself a little bit by having so many practicals? Well, it's, a, it's a, again, a, like everything, it's a fine balance. I mean, I think, you know, part of the grounded feel of the show is feeling like you're in a room where there are light sources and those light sources, as you said, would be interacting with the faces in a certain way. And when you honor that, it kind of integrates things. You know, I mean, like I said, there's a, there, there's a kind of a modern style of photography where, you know, regardless of what is going on in the room, there's like a 12 by soft light that's giving them perfectly modeled, you know, portrait photographic lighting on their face. And it always feels to me disconnected. It feels like, feels like then you've lit the background and you lit the foreground and the two aren't necessarily in the same world. And we wanted to shot, you know, I personally wanted to stay away from that. So it felt like these people were just in this room and the practicals play a huge role and the Tiki Lounge is a great example of that. I mean, A, that set is a triumph for the art department. Like, I think they emptied Canada of bamboo to build that set. Like, <laughs> honestly, I could not, like, we we had so many meetings and conversations about it. And, you know, and they were so excited about it. And, you know, I think, you know, people of a certain age like myself, we remember that time in the 70s when those sort of, you know, cultural appropriation was a restaurant theme where, you know, you take like sort of the most stereotypical version of a place and turn it into a restaurant. And tiki lounges were part of it. And, you know, they, the stuff they, I mean, it's, the set was remarkable. Like the fact that it had to be taken down just broke my heart. Because we, I said, we got to have the wrap party in here. Like, this is like the best room. Um, and when I walked in there. At least, at least the scene lasted a while. Oh, and- Yeah. Well, it was you know, an investment. That, that, we knew we were going to be in there for a while. So yeah. Um, but when I walked in, I just—it was one of the highlights of the season for me because Umbrella Academy is a show that has an incredible team, and they are all in and they're up for anything. And you know, no, no idea is too crazy or too you know too out there. And when Steve said Tiki Lounge, they just went all in, and the set was just incredible. Like. You know, the, the reality is you couldn't actually capture the full essence of that set photographically unless you were to literally like go do a, like a mini documentary on it because the details and the textures and everything were so phenomenal. But it was a huge undertaking, you know, to, to choose all the practicals was a big part of it. You know, 
getting the right mix of tones because the reality is all that bamboo, it could just end up being a sort of a brown wash if you're not careful. Uh, the choices of shapes, like creating the circular windows, was a very deliberate choice to differentiate it from the building that it's supposed to be in. So it feels like this bizarre world they've created within this building. The overhead source, excuse me, over the table was probably the most talked about light fixture of the season. Like the number of meetings and conversations, and that was all fabricated. That was all sky panels up there. And we built that light source because I knew we had a huge page count to do in there. And I knew we wanted to be able to get shots and not set up, you know, like not be, not just spend time moving the cameras around moving the lights around. It was just about getting as much coverage as we could to make that scene really, really sing as much as it could. So the idea was to create a light source that could be very flexible. And essentially we did very little else in that room for the dialogue other than kind of shape that. It had individual sky panels in it that we could shut off so we could, you know, have it be more of a key source from one side and more fill on the other side and just kind of dance those lights around. Um, and, you know, originally everyone was like, well, can't we just do something? And I'm like, no, this is like, this is the light source for this room. So, and it had to be a focal point as well. And it had to also be because we knew we were going to walk them in the way we did out of the elevator and see the whole room as they see it. We knew it needed to be integrated into the space as well. So it was a matter of kind of deconstructing it from like, okay, we need to build the rigging, essentially building a softbox and then making a tiki softbox. And I was insistent that it be round because they were like, no, a square would be so much easier. I'm like, no, no, it has to be round. If it's square, it's not going to fit in that room. Like, it's just going to look wrong. It'll look like a, a, a light source if we don't make it circular. So, again, everybody was like, oh, fine, fine. And <laughs> they figured out how to do it and welded the custom frame for it. And then the guys built the bamboo around it. And then they put all the thatching just it was an incredible undertaking just to get that one light source built. And then of course it's you know on on chain motors so we can raise and lower it. Um, but the tiki scene was a great example of of just how much discussion had to be had to take place in regards to the the light fixtures, how they integrated into the room, and in this case how they lit the cast because really we didn't do much else in that room other than you know I think we might have moved a little fill light around here and there and maybe use some nets to shape the uh, the overhead source. But really, I mean, it went so smoothly in there. And as you can see from the scene, we got a ton of coverage. And it really just sings and snaps along and has the energy that it should have. And, you know, we're really, I'm really proud of that sequence. And I just love that room. I mean, it's so amazing. You mentioned something uh, a couple minutes ago about <clears throat> trying to avoid a brown wash with so much bamboo. Um Talk to me a little bit more about that. What what are you trying to avoid in scenes like this, where you have so many practical lights, you get a big overhead light, uh, and you still need to create depth in the scene? What are some of the what are some of the things you are maybe removing from a lighting standpoint to make the shot more interesting, or what are things that you're avoiding so that things don't seem flat? Well, a, a huge part of it is is I mean the Alexa sixty five that the color depth on that camera is remarkable. Like you can dig into nuances of, of tones that more so than any other camera I've worked with, just by virtue of the sensor size and the photo sites and the color science. It's just a remarkable tool that way. So I knew that ultimately, even with the fall off of the Alexa 65, just with the resolution of the camera, I knew it would dig into the background detail. So it would never become just a blur. You know, the risk is that it just becomes sort of this one-dimensional blur of, you know, gauzy tones that don't really mean anything. So I knew we could, with our lensing, you know, given that we use wider lenses, I knew we could retain the, the texture in the backgrounds. Uh, and then it was just about not, about, you know, getting enough counterpoint in the lighting in terms of tonalities that the, the brown sort of became the canvas and then we painted on top of the canvas with, you know, lighting the foliage, like lighting that foliage was my obsession. Like it was just, I was driving the guys crazy because it was so particular how you, how you had to light the foliage, you know, the, all the, the fake plants so that you 
got, you know, little highlights, but it wasn't too much. It wasn't too green. You know, anyways, I was driving them crazy, but it's, it's all about just building enough color contrast in there so that there's visual interest and separation without having to throw up endless backlights and, you know, just getting too much, having to feel too lit. You still want it to feel like a real room, but just creating that separation through color contrast and really embracing the nuance of the tones that the 65 can create, you know, like for example, the hanging blue balls, Mm. you know, we, we wanted to get a very specific tone of blue for those. So it wasn't just a primary blue because that again, it's not the sixties to feel that like really strong primary, you know, sort of just kind of photographic blue. We want it to be like an in-between tone because I love in-between tones. I love, things that aren't primaries. I love secondary and tertiary colors. So we played yeah. with those those fixtures to get just that shade of blue that felt like a 60s blue. You know, it wasn't like a robin's egg blue. It wasn't a sky blue. It was like some weird tone that someone had invented and then threw out the paint chip after the 60s. I love that. So just really embracing color, making sure that nothing is flat, making sure you have a lot of dimension in there. Um, kind of the golden rules, but I think having to do it... <clears throat> with so many light sources in a scene that big that you live in for such a long time is yeah um, especially on a on a 360 set like that where we knew we'd be seeing every inch of that set and coverage you know we're going to be seeing the entire room you know when we're looking at the plans making sure that there was visual interest all the way around the table you know that we didn't have sort of a dead spot where one piece one person's piece of coverage just fell flat and everything else really came alive it was about having something all the way around sort of built-in backgrounds that we could shoot into that already had depth and layers and texture to it. So we didn't have to worry about the backgrounds as much. It was more about shaping the faces, getting and getting the lens in the right place. Are there any lessons you learned on season two that you can share with our audience that maybe you'll take with you on your next project? It always takes years to process, you know. <laughs> Sometimes you don't realize you learned the lesson until, you know, something two years from now and you're like, oh, right. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think the the key thing is, it's kind of the, you know, one of the basic lessons is just communication and preparation are, you know, even more critical because you, when you get an ambitious show like Umbrella Academy, there's just no room for error. You know, we can't, and we can't ever default to just kind of hosing a scene down and fix it later. That's not how the show works. You know, you have to be very meticulously planned and organized because it's a big machine and it takes time to move that machine and you don't want to lose shooting time to to the machine you know you want the machine to be on your side not fighting the machine the whole time so it really just the show taught me so much about communication and the value of it because when you get an engaged group of people like you have on umbrella and you get them all moving in one direction it's remarkable what can happen like this the season is such an achievement for the whole team because especially the crew i mean i'm i'm the alternating dp so I get to go into prep, you know, maybe get more, slightly more than six hours of sleep a night for a few weeks. Whereas the crew is just flat out all the time. You know, they're, you know, I come back slightly refreshed after three weeks of prep and I'm like, hey, and I'm full energy. And they're just like, oh God, I'm like, you know, you have no idea what we've been through, you know? And it's, so, you know, having that We've been up all night making that goddamn round light that you absolutely <laughs> insisted on, Craig. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, imagine that like 50 different times over the course of the year. Yes. Uh, that's kind of what it's like. But, you know, the, I realized that communication more than ever is more is so critical because the crew want someone who to come on board who has thought this stuff through. You know, they don't want they don't want to be led by someone who's making it up as they go along. And, you know, there's always that element of creativity you want to retain. You don't want it to be execution where you just come in and do it two plus two equals four for three weeks. You want to sometimes see if two plus two equals something else. And so going in really planned is critical. And that, that was a lesson that, you know, it just reinforced it. It wasn't a new lesson. It was just really reinforced that, you know, if you want to create something with intention uh, and have the audience feel that intention, you need to be very well prepared and planned, especially, you know, on a, on a big show, it needs to, you need to have your act together so that you can, Keep the machine on your side. Well, great lessons for everybody. And the show is just fantastic. I mean, we talked this entire episode about Umbrella Academy Season 2, but, I mean, you've directed photography for The X-Files, Twilight Zone, Fargo, Lesion. 
uh, Tales from the Loop. I know you're still in the process of filming Shrine, <clears throat> so you'll be in our neck of the woods again yes. soon. Let's have a um, coffee. I would love that. I yeah, really would. I mean, Let's get honestly, be like, great. I uh, I work with Rob Bissett a lot. He does a lot of the color work for me, and um, you know, he he's kind of how we met, and he's been mentioned a bunch of times on the show. So he's getting tons of plugs. Rob, I think you need to pay me. <laughs> <laughs> Rob's great. He's great, I and, know. I, and I'm so glad that he uh, he uh, mentioned you because, like I said, I've listened to the show for a long time, and and I, I seem to rec- I didn't know that you were based in Boston, but I seem to recall something about Boston. So I was always curious whether whether you knew those guys. So yeah, no, Rob's fantastic. Oh yeah, it's a, you know, it's a small community here in Boston relatively and everyone is really supportive of each other and uh, especially during these times, are you kidding me? Like everyone is calling everybody, what are you doing? How are you doing it? You know, how's production coming back for you? And it, it's, it's, I think that if there is a silver, silver lining of COVID-19, I think it brought the film and production community together even closer um, mm-hmm. here in Boston for sure. And I hope it's that way across the world. Calgary's a lot like Boston. Is it? Yeah, it's that small market. Yeah, everybody's super tight. Everybody's really good at what they do. It's great. It was kind of like being at home. It's nice. I love that. Well, Craig Robleski, uh, CSC. Um, you can check out both seasons of Umbrella Academy right now on Netflix. Uh, but really, I encourage you, first of all, you have to follow him on Instagram. That's a must. But then also his website. I, I love what you did on your website where you take, you kind of made your own little reel of just amazing shots of the different episodes that you've worked on across all these shows. And I think that, I think all DP should do that because, you know, when you just throw out like the, the, the trailer, that's great, but you sort of like put together the specific scenes you wanted to showcase, um, of these episodes. And I think, um, I think it's a great way to do it. So if you want to see more of Craig's work, it's at his website, craigrobleski.com. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. Um, But Craig, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm a huge fan of your work and so thankful that you are a listener of Go Creative Show. Oh, thanks, Ben. No, it's, it's been a great conversation. Maybe we can do it again sometime. All right, I want to thank Craig Robleski, CSC, for coming on the Go Creative Show and talking to us about his really incredible, stunning work on Umbrella Academy Season 1 and 2. And like I was saying at the end of the show, his work is really, really good, and you guys should certainly be checking it out. And He's got a lot of stuff on his website, his Instagram, and we'll put links to that in the show notes. I also want to thank the people behind the scenes making this show happen, got matt russell who mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good you can find him at gainstructure.com and on twitter at gainstructure and also our producer connor crosby who's putting this whole thing together Um, you can find him at ignitionvisuals.com and on twitter at ignitionvisuals of course follow go creative show across all the social media platforms twitter instagram facebook youtube of course, our website, gocreativeshow.com. And don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Now, for those of you that don't know and that have been listening to us for years, we do have a video component now. Our episodes are video now. And it's on YouTube, our YouTube channel. So if, there's, if you've ever wanted to know what I look like while I talk or what our guests look like when they talk, go to our YouTube page and check it out for yourself. We've also got some show shorts on there, which are small little segments from the episodes, little moments that we think are particularly interesting, easy to share, easy to consume. They're all there on our YouTube page, so check it out for yourself. Of course, you can follow me at Ben Consoli on Instagram and Twitter, and uh, I do a lot of my behind-the-scenes stuff there, too, sharing you know, what our sets look like, how we're lighting, who we're working with. So if you like, if you like that kind of stuff, and I know you do, Um, I'm a follower that you should be following. So I'll show you what I've been doing behind the scenes with my own production company. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors, MZ Education for Creatives and PostLab, Stress-Free Collaboration, and Final Cut Pro and Premiere. Without these people, the show wouldn't exist. So please support those that support us. And we will see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.